This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This episode contains explicit language and a racial slur unbleeped. When he was growing up, Derek Black remembers that every Thanksgiving, his dad would set a couple extra chairs at the table. From the time that I was fairly young, he was doing outreach to local skinhead leaders and people who he thought were were especially promising, that he would have them over for Thanksgiving dinner and try to talk to them about their worldview. Derek is the son of Don Black, the former Klansman and founder of Stormfront, the Internet's first major hate site. Their home in Florida wasn't just for his parents and siblings. It was also home to a sort of wider ideological family, people who were in the movement, like his godfather, David Duke, and many more. There'd be people who had led the Populist Party. There'd be people who were involved with running his website, who were visiting in town. Like this idea that his main network were other people who were advocating for white nationalism. And there's, there's a turkey on the table, and we're talking about the news, and yeah, totally. Derek publicly renounced his family's racist beliefs in 2013. But as a child of the movement, he understands it in a way few others do. Talking to him was enlightening, but it also puzzled me. Because as I've come to understand how the white supremacist movement has spent decades mainstreaming its beliefs, it's felt to me like there must be millions of Americans that are involved in it. But that's completely different from how Derek Black thinks about it. Like 30,000 people seems about right to me. Just 30,000. The people who are really involved in it, they, they know they're involved. They would answer that they are. They marry other people who they meet at white nationalist meetings, and they have other white nationalists like babysit their kids, and sometimes they try to move to towns where there are other white nationalists around, and they subscribe to white nationalist publications, and they log on to white nationalist websites. Understanding the movement in this way, as a small but tightly knit network, has helped me as I've tried to tie up one loose end that has bothered me this whole year. What happened to Clark Martell? Clark Martell was the neo-Nazi who mysteriously appeared in 1980s Chicago and revived an aging white supremacist movement with young recruits. His whereabouts now are a true mystery. As I've searched for him, 
I've learned much deeper lessons about the connections that hold this movement together and how it survives through generations. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive. Bloodlines. I spoke with a lot of people who knew Clark as a neo-Nazi skinhead leader in Chicago. Some of them even knew him well. But none of them knew anything about his origins. Hello? I was only able to learn about that from Clark's older brother. I still don't want people to know he was my brother. And we grew up in Billings, Montana, on the south side of Billings, Montana, which is the rough side of town. So we were close growing up. Um, High school age, we kind of diverged. Clark was the middle child of five. What was home life like for you all? Oh, home life. I would say the parents didn't get along really well, but they stayed together. The home was uh, kind of a ramshackle house, no bathroom, a lot of the time no running water, use an outhouse. Basically, the family just survived on the father's Social Security payments. Our father had a problem with alcohol, would often come home drunk, and then our mother would spend hours haranguing him and criticizing him, and he would just sit there drunk while she tongue-lashed him. The parents' troubles and the poverty affected Clark. Later in his life, he told people in Chicago that he had, quote, a bad childhood. Despite growing up in a neighborhood with many Black and Latino families, Clark resented his mom for, quote, fighting for minorities' rights. He was in a family that was against the Vietnam War, that was pro-civil rights. And I know at one point he really rejected that idea that he really disliked the hippies, he really disliked the peace and love, nonviolence crowd, the Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and was kind of a rejection of his own family in that way, that he felt his family were wimps. In high school, Clark became obsessed with Mein Kampf, and he later told a probation investigator in Chicago about how he had once hung a Nazi flag on his bedroom wall. He said his mother tore it down and screamed violently at him. Clark's brother said the family didn't really think anything was seriously wrong with Clark until a few weeks after Clark turned 18. He was arrested for attempting to firebomb his high school. He was found innocent by reason of mental disease or defect. After that, he was put in a mental hospital for a while. And then as soon as he convinced the mental hospital people that he was fine, he headed straight to Chicago. Clark Martell showed up, and he was a uh, on our mailing list for quite some time. When Clark rejected his family and moved to Illinois, he went to a man named Arthur Jones. At that time, Jones was with a neo-Nazi organization called the National Socialist White People's Party. He's a Holocaust denier and ran unsuccessfully as a Republican candidate for Congress this year. For a time, Martell lived in my 
headquarters in Troy Street. And I couldn't uh, abide him very long either. It was during his time with Jones that Clark started meeting people. He connected with white supremacists from other organizations. But there was drama. We had to bid him out of jail a couple of times because he kept getting in fights with the, with the locals there. So finally, we said, Martel, you got to go. So uh, he left the organization. And next thing you know, he started this Chicago area skinhead. All right. Clark lived with so many people, Arthur Jones, and then with some skinheads he recruited. And even though many described him as, quote, crazy, none of them really knew how serious his mental illnesses were. His criminal case files make it clear. Clark was diagnosed with manic depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. He took drugs to treat schizophrenia, depression, and one for bipolar mania. During one prison stint, he reportedly tried to castrate himself. Clark was also evaluated and found to suffer from alcoholism. His brother told me that their mom was diagnosed as mildly schizophrenic, and their dad drank heavily. Even if Clark had run away from his blood family, it seemed parts of them remained with him. Also among Clark's case files, there's a handwritten letter he sent to a judge when he was awaiting trial in 1993 for defacing a synagogue. In it, he wrote that he had dueling personalities. He called one of them the demon and the other the death's head. He said they both drive him to do destructive and violent things. He wrote, Both these counter-personalities are killing me, and this hate crimes business is further proof of it. At the end of the letter, he writes, Please help me get a simple lobotomy so I can live a halfway normal life. Clark lived such a marginal existence. He mostly survived on Social Security disability payments, and he lacked stable housing. And yet, he yielded such enormous influence over the lives of young people he recruited. I've sometimes thought the reason is just that when it came to the movement, he was all in. He acted like he had nothing to lose. Not reputation, not economic standing, not family. Few today willingly acknowledge their association with Clark. His ex-girlfriends denied knowing him. His own brother didn't want us to use his name because he's ashamed of what Clark became. But Adria Rybarski has good memories of Clark. It was just on and off for years, him staying with us and then going back to jail and then staying with us and then going back to jail. <laughs> Her stepdad was a neo-Nazi skinhead who let Clark stay with them for seven or so years. Adria says Clark was her babysitter and friend. When he first moved in with us in Chicago, I was probably like five, six. He was always just like this big goofy guy who would sleep on the floor in his Doc Martens with his bomber jacket draped over him like Dracula. And he would do it all the time. And I remember just being like, why? It's more comfortable like this. As a kid, Adria didn't know or understand everything Clark was up to. He enlisted her help in putting together a white power zine. And in her mind... It was just glue stick and collage making time. 
he, to me, was always super caring, attentive. When I would do like, oh, little doodles, you know, like finger paints, whatever. He'd be like, that's so awesome. You know, you're doing such a great job. And like, that's why I'd want to do more. And I want to be more creative. And it's really hard to come to grips with caring about somebody who was, you find out later on, was not the greatest person. Adria is still making sense of Clark's presence in her life and of the family of white supremacists that raised her. It was complicated because Adria is half Mexican. They would tell people I was Italian. Adria recalls one time that Clark was with them and they had other people over too, other neo-Nazi skinheads. I remember somebody had said something about me being Italian. And then as a child, you know, my instant reaction is be like, oh, you're wrong. And uh, so I said, no, I'm Mexican. I can't remember who it was, but they just turned and like looked at like my stepdad and Clark and was like, you have, you know, effing spick in your house. And it was just instant where they just grabbed him and just dragged him out of the apartment. I definitely have a lot of psychological damage that I've been working through for years. They never directly said, oh, you're subhuman. But looking in the mirror, I'm like, I have brown hair and brown eyes, you know, like, I'm not worth much to them. But blood is thicker than water. So I just try to let it go. Over the years he stayed with Adria's family, Clark's behavior became more erratic. Eventually, her mom said Clark couldn't come around anymore. Adria remembers feeling sad when he left. I think maybe he was just always searching for family. I definitely feel like with my family, like he was a part of the family. And I hope that he eventually got that. I I do. I do hope he's happy. I hope he found what he was looking for. Clark's trail went cold in 1997. His last recorded earnings are from that year. And the last entry on his lengthy rap sheet was an arrest in July of that year for drinking on the public way. At some point, me and my mom were talking, and she had mentioned, and this was when I was younger, about him having a daughter who was around my age. What was the last time that you heard from Clark? I think it was about 1997 or so, somewhere in there, where he had gotten out of prison and he said he was going to go to Texas to find his daughter and his wife or ex-wife. And that's the last I heard of him. The last correspondence we ever got from Clark was a postcard. I think it was of an astronaut. And... It came from Texas, and he said he was going to Texas to become an astronaut. But that was it. Like, we never heard from him again. My mother believes he was murdered. What I understand uh, from a a former associate of mine, apparently he couldn't keep his hand off some guy's wife, and, uh, and he ended up getting killed down in Texas. Next up. Texas.
Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The best information I got about what happened to Clark came from his sister. She declined to be recorded. But here's what she told me. In December 2003, six years after Clark disappeared, she received a phone call. It was from a U.S. Postal Service inspector. He told her that he had been investigating a case that involved a man named Carl First. The postal inspector told her that in his investigation, he was told that First had boasted about committing two killings, and one of the victims was named Clark Martell. There is no body. There is no death certificate. But these were the outlines of a jigsaw puzzle. And so I started searching for the pieces that fit. The first big break was when I realized I wasn't looking for Carl first, F-I-R-S-T. I was looking for Carl Edward Fürst, F-U-E-R-S-T. On a Tuesday afternoon in early November 2003, Fürst walked into a bank in Cullman, Alabama. He was there to deposit a check. The bank teller assisting him completed the transaction. Then, after he walked out, she turned to a wanted poster hanging on the bank wall and tore it down. It was a poster of the brown-haired 37-year-old man she had just served, wanted for mail theft and bank fraud. What followed was, by every account, an epic chase. As many as 20 squad cars from the city, county, and state, as well as a city police helicopter, pursued Fürst as he fled down highways in a gold-colored van. Fürst was also shooting at police as he drove. The pursuit ended when his car crashed in a ravine. Police found him with a bullet to his head, A coroner determined it was self-inflicted. So the man who was rumored to have killed Clark Martell died in late 2003 in a police chase. When he died, Fürst was wanted for a scheme that crossed into 20 states and spanned seven years. It involved making and pocketing cash from counterfeit checks. Ultimately, Fierst was believed to have passed over $1.5 million in fraudulent checks. Investigators searched Fierst's residence after he died. Fierst had been living on a two-and-a-half-acre ranch in a small town in the far northeast corner of Texas called Sims. The home was crammed with stolen checks, counterfeiting equipment, a swastika mouse pad, and pro-Hitler, anti-Black, anti-Jewish literature. There were also over 100,000 rounds of ammunition. There's an article I found from a trade publication called Electric Utility Week 
that covered Furst's death and the search of his home. Near the bottom, the lead investigator said they were also looking into reports that Furst, quote, killed a couple of people. That investigator from the Postal Inspection Service is named Thomas Pappas. He's the source of the story that Carl Furst murdered Clark Martell. Pappas suffered a stroke around a decade ago that left him with aphasia. It means he has trouble communicating. So I couldn't speak with him directly. Like I said, I unfortunately think I disposed of a lot when we moved here about a year ago. Hmm. Um, But I did find one file with, you know, pictures and a little bit of his notes. But I did speak to Pappas's wife, Janet who searched through her husband's files to see what else we might be able to learn about Carl Edward Furst. And he has here in his notes, I spoke with his common-law wife and advised her of his death. According to her, she has been with him for seven years, but knew him as Richard Hamilton. They have a seven-year-old boy named, get this, Carl Edward. (laughs) My name currently is Carl Edward Douthit. Carl Edward Douthit is the son of Carl Edward Furst. There is a photo out there somewhere in the world, and it's a group of KKK members standing there in their robes. But then on the very side of it, there's a little, like, six-year-old holding a paper plate with a hot dog on it. That's me. Carl Douthit was only seven when his father died. And even though his father was involved in his life, taught him to read, write, ride a bike... It turns out he didn't really know him. In fact, he didn't even know his real name. Yeah, we knew him as Richard Hamilton until he died. He was Richard Hamilton, computer repairman to us. Carl's mother is a woman named Susie Haka. She's originally from Illinois. And she's also the mother of Clark Martell's daughter. There were several people in Illinois who told us they'd heard Clark was killed by a man in Texas in a love triangle. And when I found Carl Douthit, I could confirm that there was some sort of triangle here. Clark Martell, Carl Furst, who was rumored to have murdered Clark, and Susie Haka, who'd had children by both men. Carl Douthit says he was shocked to learn from reading news reports that his dad had stolen so much money. Because the house felt more like a shack. (laughs) That's why I also wondered, is there another family? Is there anything else that he put that towards? Because nothing. There was nothing left for that. And it's not that I would want that, but I would want to know, what did he do with that? After his dad died, Carl Douthit and his mom moved into the home his dad had lived in the one that federal investigators apparently searched to recover some of what Furst had stolen. I remember he had this collection of pickled vegetables in a closet. But when going through it, they had little things of foil hidden between the vegetables filled with cash. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you'd find, sorry, so you found like, like aluminum foil packets, you're saying? Like... In In, between pickles? In jars of pickled vegetables. Carl Douthit said that after his dad died, his life got harder. He said his half-brothers started bullying him. 
and he personally began to reject the hate-filled beliefs of the movement. Carl left Texas as a teen to finish out high school with a relative in Oklahoma. That relative was his half-sister, the daughter of Clark Martell. I reached out to Clark's daughter. She did not agree to an interview, and she asked that we leave her name out of it. I told Carl Douthit about the claim that Carl Furst had murdered Clark, or, put another way, that his dad may have murdered his half-sister's dad. Wow. I'm sorry, I'm just kind of... That astounds me. I, I can't deny it or say it's true, but I never thought about that. I, I never personally met her dad. I didn't even know who her dad was. Uh, wow. <laughs> so now I'm kind of scared about the land. <laughs> uh, my mom still lives at that house with, with her husband. Well, she she lives in a mobile home on the land now. But wow, I'm very curious now. (laughs) I also reached out to his mom, Susie, several times for an interview. The first time she ignored me, but sent a message to Christian Picciolini, the former neo-Nazi skinhead who worked with us on this podcast. She challenged how well Christian really knew Clark, and she signed off her message with the number 88 in the movement code for Heil Hitler. When I reached out to Susie a second time, she denied knowing Clark Martell, Carl Furst, and the name Richard Hamilton, which was Furst's alias. When I sent her copies of legal documents as evidence of her connections, she responded with a bizarre claim that the person on those documents must have been her mom. Her mom has a completely different name. Carl Douthit told me about how his dad met his mom. It was when Fierst was released from federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, in early 1996. The story that I was told over the years is that she was dating his friend who was also in prison with him. And her boyfriend had asked, hey, will you give my friend a ride? He's getting out. So she gave my dad a ride. Nine months later, Carl Douthit was born. It turned out understanding Furst's experience at Leavenworth Prison helped me make more sense of this complicated story. Most importantly, it seems to be the place where he was radicalized. Investigators who were pursuing Furst before his death noted that while Furst was incarcerated, he befriended a member of a notorious white terrorist group called The Order. I don't know if Susie's boyfriend at Leavenworth or Susie herself, were affiliated with the Order. But I have wondered. Let me slow you down, because there's a lot happening here and there's much to say. Kathleen Ballou is a history professor at the University of Chicago and author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. There was a huge campaign to try to connect white women, especially quote-unquote eligible movement white women, with incarcerated members of the white power movement. This is very, very common in groups like the Order, where 
leaders promised things like multiple wives will be awaiting you when you come out of prison. There was the idea that polygamy and multiple wives would be permitted to kind of Aryan soldiers of the highest order. And there was a series of pen pal campaigns and personal ads and things like that that were specifically directed at connecting white women with people who were incarcerated. I've also wondered if Carl Fürst's crime spree was inspired in some ways by what the order did. They robbed armored cars in Ukiah, California. They killed the radio talk show host, Alan Berg. People like Henry Kissinger and Norman Lear were next on the order's list. What they did was carry out a string of moralized crimes, meaning that they would hit things that they thought were immoral targets, like porn stores or like they tried to bomb a gay movie theater because they thought that that was immoral. And then they also hit banks, which they also thought were part of a government conspiracy. They believed that the whole system was controlled by Jewish outsiders. The order heisted two armored cars for nearly $4 million. Their biggest hit was of a Brinks armored car. And it's a really significant story for the white power movement because what they did was travel around the country distributing that money to other white power groups. This is not just about let's take the money and have a big party. You know, this is about we need to mobilize resources for the race war. And there are several copycat groups that keep doing this after the main kind of prosecutions of the order in the late 80s. When I look at what Carl Furst was doing after he left prison... I wonder if he was maybe one of those copycats. The postal inspector who led the Fierst case did share publicly that, quote, it is possible that Fierst may be using some of the proceeds from his crimes to help fund white supremacist groups. Investigators also believed Fierst may have been harbored by Christian identity churches as he was on his crime spree. Those are groups in the movement that ascribe to a racist and anti-Semitic theology. Fürst's ties to Christian identity groups may have been strengthened by the family he joined in Sims, Texas. Susie's twin sister had had a child with a man named James Wickstrom. Wickstrom is a prominent name in the white supremacist movement. He was a leader in the Posse Comitatus and the Christian Identity Church. There's one more interesting parallel between how Carl Fürst operated and the activities of the order. After he left prison, Fürst was using an alias, Richard Hamilton. Investigators found a social security card for Richard Hamilton in Fürst's van when he died. Okay. So, um, yes, this is the correct Richard Hamilton. Richard Hamilton has lived mostly in the Pacific Northwest, It turned out he did recall having problems when he moved from Oregon to Washington and wanted a new driver's license. And then they said that there was a suspension or something on it out of Texas. And I said, well, I've never been to Texas, so I don't know why there would be any anything going on with that. So so I guess I guess what I'm wondering is like, I mean, he had like all your identifying information, it seems. Do you have any idea how it might have gotten to him? I don't. Yeah, I don't. It was absolutely news to me at the time, and I wasn't really clear on how much of my information that they actually had. Okay, so let me back up to the stolen identity thing. You Chicago professor Kathleen Ballou. 
in paramilitary culture more broadly, but especially in the white power movement, there's a ton of information about identity theft in the 80s. The order was very, very interested in how to get false identification. They would do things like go to cemeteries in the Pacific Northwest, because those activists were based in Washington, Oregon, and Northern Idaho. And they would look for infants who had died in childhood and then use those names and birthdays to then falsify ID that they could use. That's not what happened to Richard Hamilton. But the fact that he was in the Pacific Northwest, where the movement was harvesting identities, is striking. I started down this rabbit hole because I was looking for Clark Martell. But I haven't found him. I can't say for sure that Clark was murdered by Carl Furst. I can't even say for sure that Clark is dead. The thing I never expected was that along this journey, I would trip on a whole scheme that reveals how interwoven the movement really is and how sex, blood, and money help it to survive. I told Christian Picciolini what I found. So that's our, that's where we are. This is some deep shit. Christian has been trying to find Clark for more than 20 years. He wants to know what happened to the man that recruited him and changed his life. He never got this far. And he never imagined it would lead to big names in the movement, including people from the order. I used to write to all the order guys in prison, Richard Scutari, Gary Yarbrough, David Lane. Um, this is some really very deeply rooted white supremacist royalty stuff. This is weird. I was not aware of this. The movement is strong, growing stronger, and getting bigger. But Kathleen Ballou says that's because we as a society, have never recognized it for what it is. Tight-knit, cohesive, and violent. That same social movement, we have never confronted it as a society. There has never been a cohesive court prosecution that really drained this movement of its resources and power. There has never been a moment of journalistic understanding where people said, oh, this is a huge problem, we have to mobilize to stop it. It's taken decades to address even incrementally the ways that this movement recruits people and then carries out acts of violence. And that's been true in every sphere of response. What we have not done is systematically as a culture reckon with the fact that there is a very small but very violent white power movement that is today still wreaking havoc on our electoral systems and attempting mass violence. I think it's in everyone's interest to take this story seriously. I've spent a year talking to Nazis, reading some of the most vile literature anyone's written. At times, the darkness has felt overwhelming. But it has also helped me to learn that hate starts small. A few months after the end of the Civil War, It was just six Confederate veterans who formed a secret society called the Ku Klux Klan. In 1980s Chicago, only 10 or so young people joined a neo-Nazi skinhead crew. Adamwaffen Division 
never even numbered 100 people. These groups grow bigger and spread their ideas when we're not vigilant, when we don't recognize their violence for what it is, when we ignore or downplay or even platform them as some sort of entertainment. Understanding how this hate movement starts, organizes, and grows is an important step in recognizing and resisting it. It may take generations to undo its harm, but it can be done because there are so many more people who stand against hate than for it. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Odette Youssef. The producer is Colin McNulty. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Story consultant, Christian Picciolini. Our intern is Hannah Boomershine. Joe Dassault makes the show. Original music by Stephen Jackson and Jesse Dukes, along with Andrew Merriweather and Sam Clapp. We couldn't have made this show without the keen input of Kate Cahan, Alexander Solomon, Shannon Heffernan, Natalie Moore, Rob Wildebor, Jesse Dukes, Stephen Jackson, Candice Mattel-Khan, and Patrick Smith. Thanks also to Betsy Berger, Victor Lim, Cindy Abbott, Steve Mandel, Brendan Banizak, and Steve Edwards. And special thanks to listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.